Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 48. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be back. Uh, we're coming again on Wednesday, so I've gotten a little behind on my Monday schedule, but uh, we're still going to do this once a week. I'm trying to pump out that Hamilton book, and uh, that should be wrapped up within uh, the next six weeks or so. So maybe at that point I'll be back on a two-time-a-week podcast, but we'll see. Either way, we're either going to have the podcast Monday or Wednesday. Um, that said, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't followed me on social media, please please do so. I have a Facebook page. You can look me up, Brian McClanahan find my Facebook page. If you go to my to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, that's Brian with an O, you can find all my social media accounts, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. So go ahead and follow me on those things. Um, also, I'd love to hear from you in those particular areas if you want to drop me a comment or a suggestion for a podcast. Uh, because of the book, it's hard for me to, to follow up on some of those things right now, but I plan on getting back into that again once this thing is out of the way. Um, just been wrapping up John Marshall, so uh, we're we're uh, steadily moving along there, but uh, it's going to take me a little more time. So that said, I want to focus today on the debate. Now, I know this is three days late, and people have been talking about the debate, and it's almost like we've moved on from the Sunday night debate. But uh, one person did put a post up. They wanted to hear my post-debate analysis. So uh, I'm going to give that to you in a, in a way that I don't think anybody else has. And that's, that's just focusing on you know what these candidates talked about or— how they presented themselves. I will make one or two comments about their presentation, and I will talk about some of the issues. But there's a couple of things I think are a little more important than uh, what the media has been focusing on. And, of course, all the attention was on how Trump would respond to the uh, audio that was leaked last Friday about uh, some comments that he made uh, when in 2005 about women. And uh, then, of course, a lot of attention was put on the fact that Trump, for the first time, Acklinton out as a rapist, which uh, is definitely true, and actually had the women who have accused him in the audience. And so showing the Clintons as the scoundrels that they really are, I mean, I think that's something that the, the uh, millennial generation, younger people, don't really know much about. Uh, I remember, in, well, in class today, I brought up uh, the email scandal, uh, and nobody had heard of that. And this is a class full of college freshmen and sophomores. They hadn't even heard of the fact that several of the people who were involved in that server episode had taken the Fifth Amendment. We were talking about the Constitution, and we were talking about the Fifth Amendment. They had pleaded the Fifth, and this is a major issue that nobody really focuses on. So there are a lot of things out there that Trump needs to get out, and I think that, of course, he's being blocked by the uh, establishment media. Um, But uh, that said, I think that he's doing a pretty good job of uh, showing the Clintons for who they really are. Now, as far as the debate, one thing I think was very clear is that Clinton is a much more politish, polished politician than Donald Trump, and that's a bad thing, right, for Clinton. 
Uh, it's not an honor to say that you're a politician. In fact, Trump actually said this during the debate. Well, I guess, you know, as a politician the last uh, year and a half, I never thought I'd say that. He's not a politician. I think that's refreshing. Uh, he didn't uh, stand and talk directly to the people that asked the question. He talked more into the camera. Of course, this comes from his training and uh, his television uh, experience. So he was talking out to the camera more than to the people who asked questions. He paced around uh, during the questions and answers. He seemed a little bit uh, to be, uh, you know, ner- not nervous, but he didn't know what to do with himself. He had a lot of energy. And Clinton, of course, doesn't have any energy because she's sick. But she sat down when it was her, her time to sit down, and she got up when it was her time to get up. Uh, so Trump didn't seem as polished on the debate stage. Uh, Clinton, in fact, was following the blueprint that her husband put out from 1992. Now, if you're a millennial and listen to this podcast, you know, I realize that people born in 1992 now are in their mid-20s, so that might be you. You may not remember the 1992 debate between Clinton, Ross Perot, and George H.W. George H. Bush. That was a town hall-style debate. And they had a question from the audience that was completely stupid, but it was the, the uh, event that really put Bill Clinton over the top, so to speak. And it was about the national debt. They had this moron stand up and ask a question about the national debt. And um, she said, you know, what are you going to do? How does the national debt affect you? And George H.W. Bush was the first one to respond, and he flubbed all around. He said some really stupid things. And then Bill Clinton comes in and stands gets right up next to the to the girl and gets very personal with her as only Bill Clinton would do but uh he, it was his attachment to people no yeah i want to i want to tell you uh, i've been all around the country speaking to people just like you all over the place and the thing they tell me is that it's it's hard out there we we got to we got to we got to solve this problem it's not just the debt we got problems with trade we got problems with taxes we got problems with everything and by the way, can I get your phone number when that's over? Because uh, I, I think the Arkansas State Police are out there looking for you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you just vote for me, honey. And I, I'm, I'm right up next to you here. But uh, I'm going to get right up here in your face. I'm going to be real personal with you. Because that's what I have to do to get your vote. And now I want you to vote for my wife, who's only my wife uh, legally. But... Uh, that's all right. I get to go back to the White House and I can call you again, honey. That'd be good. So this is what Clinton did. He was very good at connecting with people. And this is what Hillary Clinton was trying to do. I don't think she pulls it off. She's the most stiff, plastic, uh, impersonal candidate I've seen in a long time for president of the United States. Uh, Trump has much more personality but Clinton is, is the nominee, and she has a very good chance of winning. So I'm going to talk about that in a minute, what that means for America in some ways. So you got this dichotomy. You have Trump, the non-polished, non-politician, uh, who wouldn't stay on topic because what he's trying to do is hammer home issues. And then you got Clinton, who wants to engage people and pretend like she likes them and that their questions are important and she really cares about them, which she doesn't. But uh, this is what she's trying to do. So let's focus on some of the things that, that I think were interesting about this debate. First and foremost, the questions were stupid. And I've talked about this on this podcast before, how uh, the president has no control over most things that people will ask the president. Uh, you know, what do you think about energy policy? Well, 
Frankly, that's the Congress's job, if there is any constitutional job for energy policy whatsoever. Not the president's job. Uh, you know, what do you think about education? Again, a stupid question. What do you think about health care? Stupid question. These are questions that should be asked to your congressmen, or more accurately, your state representatives, because they're the ones that really handle these things. But we have, I guess if you talk about energy policy in the context of foreign policy, and that's something that's very interesting, because every time some of these things would come up, Trump would try to pivot and make it a foreign policy issue, whether it was immigration, which was asked, that is a foreign policy issue, or energy policy, saying, hey, look, what we got to do is uh, you know, become energy independent so we're not worried about trade with uh, these foreign powers to try to get oil and natural gas and other things. We've got plenty here. Of course, Clinton's going to make it into a green energy debate, uh, and uh, that, that's simply not, not what was asked. But uh, the, the point is, everything Trump tried to do was pivot towards foreign policy, which honestly is his strength. Now, I know Clinton tried to say it's her strength, and, she, and then, of course, at one point she rattled off several things, and these are all the things that I've done, these are the things I'm proud of in my 30 years of service. It was all garbage. Because all of it was unconstitutional. But that's beside the point. Americans don't understand that the president has very few constitutional powers. But one of the things that they do have control over, almost exclusively, but of course with advice and consent of the Senate, is foreign policy. They are head of state. And they can set foreign policy. So there really is a major difference between Clinton and Trump. Uh, and Trump was actually very open about it. I was actually shocked that he said this. He said, look, I don't agree with my vice presidential candidate. Uh, I don't agree with Mike Pence on foreign policy in Russia. Now, of course, Clinton's trying to say, well, this is all because Trump, uh, you know, the Russians are trying to get Trump the election. Uh, the Russians are evil. They're, they're, they're dangerous. What's really dangerous is a policy in the Middle East that's going to lead to World War III. And I think it's coming. Uh, and this is the scariest thing that we've, we've got going right now. Uh, the fact that we are in, in a point in now foreign relations with Russia that we haven't been in since the 1970s. And frankly, uh, there is, I have no hope that Hillary Clinton would be any good at dealing with the Russians. Uh, and Donald Trump said it right. Well, look, they're our natural ally, ally in this fight against terrorism. They are. Uh, they've got issues with terrorism just like the United States has. And so why don't we work together to try to get rid of this, this uh, major problem in, in America and Europe and around the world instead of trying to be adversaries and arming the bad guys, which is what we're doing in Syria. So Trump's foreign policy really does set him apart, whether it's immigration. You know, Hillary Clinton has been unabashed about her want, her desire to allow hundreds of thousands of more people into the United States. Um, She's been unabashed in her uh, disdain for immigration law, and she will not enforce it, which is an impeachable offense, by the way. If she does not execute the laws on the books, she is, that is a dereliction of duty, and she is not preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution, nor is she executing the laws of the United States, which is one of her constitutional responsibilities. So uh, she is completely uh, the opposite of Trump on immigration, which is a bad thing. Uh, and then, of course, you have the issue with Russia. Uh, you have the issue of trade, which he is awful on. Uh, so I think that at the end of the day, the, uh, Trump is actually doing something 
that hasn't been done in a while, and that's focusing on the constitutional responsibilities of the executive branch. When he's asked about Obamacare, he doesn't have a whole lot of specifics, or he's asked about taxes or whatever. It's not a whole lot of specifics. He'll just say, look, yeah, we're going to look into that. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to, to uh, do something about that. I don't have a lot of confidence in his solutions all the time uh, because, frankly, Trump shouldn't really have any solutions. These should be things that Congress works on, and Trump, of course, would sign the law if it's constitutional or not. I mean, if he likes it, he'll sign it. But to think the president needs to come up with a 25-point plan on how to reduce taxes is just stupid. But this is what Americans want. To think the president needs to come up with a plan to solve education problems in America is just completely stupid as well. But again, this is what Americans want. For whatever reason, they think it's important for the president to have a policy on every issue under the sun. So looking at the questions that were asked, I mean, it was, it was typical. This is what I expected of questions from participants on the stage. It's what I expected from Internet questions. Uh, I did look at the uh, the questions, and f- and thankfully they didn't pick a lot of the uh, idiotic ones that uh, were trending very highly uh, at the at the end of this process, this open debate uh, website. They did ask uh, a couple that I thought were were frankly uh, hard hitting on Clinton, and I thought that was unusual. Though of course Martha Raddatz uh, is in the tank for Clinton and uh, made that obvious during the debate. Um, same thing with Anderson Cooper, but uh, regardless of that, Cooper has got a little more integrity than Martha Raddatz does. But um, The thing that I thought, though, that was the most interesting about this was the first question that was asked, and that is, how are you going to have respect in politics? How are you going to show people respect? I thought this was a very interesting question because, of course, it immediately led into the personal attacks flung back and forth at both candidates. Trump, of course, was personally attacking Clinton. Clinton was personally attacking Trump. And uh, when you ask people afterwards, they're like, oh, these are just a bunch of kids fighting. It's like a bunch of two-year-olds up there. This is so unpresidential for people to do this. And I think that's because they have no historical perspective. Our historical perspective goes back maybe 30 years. That's it. Uh, I was actually on um, the—it's a website— entitled the United States Presidency Project, I think is what it is. But anyways, it has all the State of the Union addresses and veto messages and all those things for for every president. Executive orders. It's a great project, great website to go read it. And on the left-hand side, they have a column of the most viewed material. And almost all of it is from Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, John F. Kennedy. Uh, I mean, you're looking at presidents in the last 50 years. Uh, I said 30 years. I mean, there are a couple there for Kennedy, but for the most part, there was one document that's that's viewed quite a bit, or two documents, I should say, from anywhere in the 18th or 19th century, and that would be Lincoln and Washington. So that's our historical stupidity on display. Uh, we think that John F. Kennedy is a great president because, my gosh, I mean, he's all over the place. I mean, he's all over the media. We got to talk about Kennedy. You got to talk about Franklin Roosevelt. We got to talk about, uh, you know, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan. These are the only people we think about. And I think that's to our own detriment. So when you talk about respect in politics, and this is the long-winded way. It took me about 14 minutes to get to this point and what I want to say about this. And I actually wrote a piece for this uh, on this issue for Breitbart uh, a couple of months back. Actually, more than a couple of months now. I can't remember the date it was out. But it was, uh, you know, Trump is elevating political discourse. 
Because at that time, people were criticizing him. Oh, he's getting in the gutter. He's calling people names and these type of things. Uh, what I see out of the Clinton campaign right now is the exact same thing, if not worse, because essentially what Clinton has done is marginalize about 50% of the population. She's already made clear she's only going to be a president for 50% of the population. That's it. She doesn't really care about the other 50%. She doesn't care about calling them names. She doesn't care about anything they care about, and she's going to govern that way. If Hillary Clinton becomes president, I think that you are going to see a vicious campaign to marginalize and demonize the other side. There's no doubt about it. Um, and God help us if we actually get into a major military conflict, because if you look at American history, we have lost our civil liberties most in a wartime situation. The domestic situation would be awful. The foreign policy situation would be awful. Not even thinking about nuclear war, which would just wipe out humanity, and I hope that's nowhere near on the horizon. But we are dealing with uh, you know, a very tense situation with Russia. So Hillary Clinton, I think, would be very bad for the United States in so many different ways. I think she would even be worse than Obama and, and Bill Clinton, her husband, when it came to dissent. I really believe that Clinton would try to do everything she can to silence dissent. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton would. I, I, I cannot see even, even worse than Obama and, uh, and Bill Clinton. There, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, she is that kind of person. And um, what's interesting is Edward Klein has a book uh, just came out on Hillary Clinton. And I was listening to his interview on the, uh, on the radio last night. And first of all, he got one thing wrong. He said, you know, Clinton believes and in, in she's, a, she's a federalist. Hillary Clinton is not a federalist. She's a nationalist. And this is what he's trying to explain. But this is, this is the problem with our language. Even. We don't understand these things. Hillary Clinton is a nationalist, and he was explaining how she wants to abolish the states when it comes to education. She wants to abolish the states when it comes to just about virtually any policy. She wants the states out of the way, so that makes her a federalist. No, it makes her a nationalist. A federalist would say, well, let's have state control of things. Uh, and I actually, I was doing a little research today, and I came across a video from the History Channel, and it was a little short video on facts about Alexander Hamilton. And they had this professor on there who was a professor of gender studies somewhere. And obviously that makes her an expert on Alexander Hamilton for whatever. But she's up there saying, uh, we know Hamilton was a, was a Federalist, which means he believed uh, he was just an arch-Federalist, which means that, uh, that he believes in a strong central government. Well, yeah, sort of, but he was a nationalist. That's what Hamilton was, a nationalist. So we have to get these terms right. A Federalist. Now, I know the Federalist faction stole the name, and so we think, well, that means strong central government. This is just completely idiotic. Uh, I know I'm using that term a lot tonight, idiotic, because that's, that's really how I'm thinking about things right now. It's, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm walking in a world of idiots at this particular point. Not my listeners, of course. You all are very smart. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom Woods listeners and, and uh, you know, Liberty Classroom people. Uh, I have hope for you. Uh, but uh, not a whole lot of people for a lot of for uh, not a lot of hope for a lot of other people, and a lot of it's just because they don't care. It's not because they're stupid. It's just because they don't care enough to really dive into these things and figure these things out. So respect in politics. Back to that. Uh, first of all, if you look back at history, you would find that presidential campaigns were really nasty. Uh, up until the modern era, really. I mean, you know, if you go back and look at the 1800 election and some of the things that were said about John Adams, uh, I mean, they were vicious. Or go back to the 1824 election, 
1828 election, more more accurately, the 1828 election, where uh, you know the the uh, Adams uh, John Quincy Adams campaign was calling uh, Andrew Jackson's wife uh, a bigamist, which she was. But I mean, they were dragging her through the dirt, and she had a heart attack right after the election. Uh, probably because of all the stress. And, of course, uh, you know, the Jackson campaign is dragging John Quincy Adams through the dirt, saying all kinds of nasty things about him, like uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, inviting, uh, pimping out the White House for the Russian czar and all kinds of things. I mean, so there were some pretty nasty things said, uh, and that was just one example. I mean, you had uh, through the 1850s and 60s into the 1870s and 80s, you really had some nasty campaigns. Uh, Grover Cleveland was called out for being immoral by having a child out of wedlock, which uh, he just claimed, uh, he just owned up to it at one point. But discourse, public discourse was really nasty. And you had partisan political newspapers. They were owned by people who were in the tank for one candidate or one party or another. And it was open. Now what we have is a supposed objective press, which they're not objective, but they try to have this veil of objectivity, which is completely wrong because they don't believe in it. I would rather have the press be open about their biases and expose those biases than be in a situation where we think the press is being objective because this is what most of America thinks. Well, the press is objective. They're just the press. They're just reporting the news. Well, it's completely untrue. If we had biased news sources and they said they were biased, well, then you would know from the beginning. I mean, this is why in some ways, you know, even though I don't agree with everything on Fox News, it's refreshing because they're they're biased, and they say it. Uh, these The talk shows like Rachel Maddow and Sean Hannity and all these, I mean, they're biased from the beginning. You know what you're getting. That's why those shows are the best shows. The talking head nonsense on ABC, NBC, CBS, whatever it is, that's just standard news, is biased, but people don't realize it. It's biased in the selection of stories alone. There's a bias. And this goes back to history, too. You know, of course, all historians are biased. People are biased. And so it would be better to know this up front and that way you could level attacks against the candidates uh, and people would know where you're coming from. Uh, so respect in, po- in politics. I mean, this is not something politicians need to do. Uh, it used to be before you had the secret ballot, you had to publicly proclaim who you were voting for. And they would buy you barbecue and beer and all kinds of things, try to get you drunk and feed you so you would vote for them. And, of course, they say very nasty things about their candidates, uh, the, the opposition, whatever they can do to get you to vote their way. Politics has always been a nasty, dirty business. Uh, this is one of the reasons why, uh, interestingly enough, if you look back at uh, the uh, women's suffrage movement, the anti-women's suffrage uh, people, the anti-suffragists, um, would say that women don't need to get in politics because it's such a dirty game. You're going to stain the reputation of women if you do this because they got to get down the trenches with the men. And men are pigs. And so uh, men are going to say nasty things. And who wants women to be, who, who wants a woman or women who, who, who respect and revere, who wants them to be part of that? Now, that's not their game. That's not what they're. That's not what they're there for. To act like men, but of course that's very uh, you know 19th century or uh, you know non PC talk today. Um, so it's you can't really say these things anywhere else. But uh, this is what we're dealing with now in America. We've got we've got people who don't want anyone to be mean to each other because we've got Generation Snowflake. Uh, we we've got people who don't want to focus on issues. It's uh, you know, every time Trump would try to pivot to issues, 
uh, Clinton would, uh, you know, come up with some nonsense about, uh, you know, th- something about Donald Trump and what he said to women, or she would try to talk about an issue, uh, and of course she would try to give all these specifics about what she's going to do here. That's not what we want. What the president really can do. So we have this complete disconnect in America as to what the president should do, what the president shouldn't do, and our perception of politics. Politics is dirty. Politics is nasty. And it's always, always, always been that way. There's never been a point in American history when it wasn't. And it's gotten better, actually, than it used to be. If you study enough history, you'll find that. Uh, You don't see nearly the nastiness that you used to see uh, back in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. We've gotten better over time with these things. And so the personal attacks is nothing new. it didn't bother me whatsoever. Some of it was actually kind of funny. Um, but I think in that way, you know, we're, we're, if the personal attacks get even nastier, then we're going back to real American politics. Let's get down and dirty. Let's call the people who they are. Let's call the Clintons out for who they are. And fine, call, the, call Trump out for who he is. Uh, neither of them are perfect. Uh, the only thing you can say about Trump is his foreign policy is better than Clinton's. And for that reason alone, for that reason alone, it's not perfect. It's not a great foreign policy. But for that reason alone, Trump is worth supporting over Hillary Clinton. Now, again, I will give you my election uh, ideas on how to vote. Uh, And uh, probably, let's see, we're looking at uh, a couple of weeks away, probably the week before the election. So probably November 2nd or 3rd, I'll go ahead and do that podcast. So I've got... um, uh, I guess, what, um, two more podcasts before then? So uh, I'll do something else before that. But this was kind of a user-requested episode. They wanted my thoughts on the debate. Uh, long story short, I do think Trump won the debate. But when you look at it, uh, it's um, there, there was uh, so many lost opportunities still in this one to hit Clinton even harder than he did. Of course, he hit her pretty hard this time. But the format was uh, is, is idiotic. We don't have town halls with 320 million people. You can't have that. And uh, I do like the fact that Trump is not a politician. He wasn't polished. That's great, because what we need is a real outsider coming into D.C. Uh, we don't need the political class continuing in power. Uh, and one thing I was going to do at some point is, is, I might do this my next podcast, is talk about the similarities between Rome and the United States. And there are so many. Uh, that's an easy one, but a lot of people don't realize these things. So Maybe I'll do that for another podcast. But until next time, I'll see you later.